4. I didn't get confused with Sunday morning and Wednesday night. I know we've been in the book of James for a while on Wednesday nights and studying through the book, but um, I wanted to pull out a verse here in James chapter 4 that we didn't get a ton of time to spend on, uh, in fact, just this past Wednesday night. And so I want to preach a message on that this morning, but James chapter 4, I, I don't even think I really need to ask this question because if you're honest, I think, I think everybody's answer would be the same. But if I were to ask you this morning, how many of you want to be a failure in life? Don't think very many hands would go up unless it's the kid trying to be funny, right? Uh, or the adult trying to be funny because we have that too. But, uh, you know, how many, how many people want their life to be an absolute disaster? I think the answer to that would be nobody. Nobody wants their life to be a disaster. Nobody wants their life to end in failure. Uh, but there are some sure ways to become a failure in your life. A very, very simple message that I have for you this morning, but it's simply this, how to guarantee failure. How to guarantee failure. We'll look at a few of those things this morning, but let's have a word of prayer first. Father, we love you, and again, we thank you so much for your goodness to us and for an opportunity we have to be in your house this morning. Pray that this would be a help to us, a, a very simple message, very practical message, but very much a biblical message to remind us that we need to do our best to live for you with our lives. And God, I pray that it would be a help to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 4 and verse number 17 says, Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Now, most of us have probably at some point in our life, if you've been saved for any length of time, have probably memorized that verse. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. But I think a lot of times, memorizing verses does the exact same thing, or we do the exact same thing in memorizing verses that we do with singing songs. We've sung the song so many times, we can sing it without a book, we can sing it without even thinking about it, and that's most of the time what we do. We're not thinking about the words to the songs that we're singing. We're not thinking about the words to the Bible verses that we're memorizing. But think about that. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So the first thing that you can do to guarantee failure in your life is don't accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Keep your finger there in James chapter 4. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. For those who don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, God's given you a chance to accept him. If you reject him, you're going to regret it forever. And boy, there is no failure like a failure for all of eternity. You can make a mistake in life. You can, you can have a bad business deal or you can stumble even in your Christian life and make a little bit of mistake that you can recover from. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your eternity is settled. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's a failure that's going to last for an eternity. That's a mistake that you cannot recover from. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 2, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What a, what, a, what a reminder. Being saved is the first step toward a successful Christian life. And by the way, when I talk about being a failure, I'm not talking about being a success or a failure in business or in life. I'm talking about a success or a failure in our Christian life. We need to be successful in our Christian life if we're going to accomplish anything for God. And you cannot even be a Christian if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've not made it to step one if you don't know that you're on your way to heaven. Your life will all be in vain if you reject Jesus Christ. In fact, let me show you a story in Luke chapter 16 about a man who did just exactly that. Turn over there, if you will, in Luke chapter 16. I'm not going to read the entire passage because we don't have time to do that this morning. But Jesus Christ is teaching... And he gives a parable about a rich man 
and Lazarus. And he said that rich man had everything he could have wanted. And Lazarus had nothing. Lazarus, in fact, sat outside of this rich man's gate waiting for them to bring the scraps and dump them outside so he can go pick through the scraps and have something to eat. Could you imagine having that life? Could you imagine not knowing what your next meal is going to be, but knowing that it's going to come from somebody else's trash? Could you imagine that? When we were in India, we saw uh, the cows and the wild hogs and the dogs walking around the streets, picking through people's trash. But believe it or not, I never saw one person picking through the trash looking for food. But that's what Lazarus did. Lazarus was picking through the trash of this rich man, hoping that some of those crumbs, some of the leftovers would fall from his table, so to speak, so that he could have something to eat. This rich man had everything. And now what the Bible is, what Jesus is trying to get across here is not that if you're rich, you're going to hell. If you're poor, you're going to heaven. A lot of people have that mindset, right? You died, so you must be going to heaven. You're in a better place. Oh, he had such a rough life, but now he's in a lot better place. Not if he doesn't know Jesus Christ as his Savior. Not if you've not accepted Jesus Christ. Boy, what a horrible, horrible thing to have happen, to have a horrible, tough, miserable life, and then to have a horrible, tough, miserable eternity after that. Now, in this case, it was the exact opposite. The rich man had a wonderful life, had everything that he could have wanted, and he had a horrible, miserable eternity. And by the way, this story that happened over 2,000 years ago, this rich man is still burning in hell. But the Bible says in, in Luke chapter 16 and verse number 23, and in hell he lift up his eyes, talking about the rich man, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, get this, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Could you imagine being in such torment that all you want is a drop of water? One drop. Let him dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I know that you've been out working in the yard on a hot uh, summer afternoon. Have you ever said, can somebody just please bring me a drop of water? No, you probably said, can somebody bring me a bottle of water or an ice cold glass of tea or something? But could you imagine being so tormented that all you want is one drop of water? But that's what this rich man was going through. Not because he was rich, but because he counted on those riches. He was counting on his goodness. He was counting on all the things that he had, and he rejected Jesus Christ. You cannot be a, a success in life if your eternity is not settled when life is over. This quote has been very widely used, so there's no way to attribute it to whoever said it the first time. But he said, you're not ready to live until you're ready to die. You're not ready to live until you're ready to die. You can never be a true success in life if you're not a Christian. And you're not a Christian until you accept Jesus Christ as the penalty and the payment for your sin. And until you repent and turn from that sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ as your only hope. You want to be a failure? You want to guarantee failure in your life? Don't accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. But the second way to guarantee failure is found, I think, in Psalm 19. Turn over there, if you will. The second way to guarantee failure, and I told you this is a very simple message this morning, but don't read your Bible. You want to guarantee failure? Don't read your Bible. And it sounds so simple, but if I were to ask you how much time did you spend in the Word of God this week, what would your answer be? How much time did you spend reading your Bible this week? How much, did you, how much time did you spend studying your Bible this week? Well, I'm a Christian, and I, you know, I bring my Bible to church, and I read it, and, and uh, I follow along with the pastor while he's preaching, and I, 
you know, I, I mean, I carry my Bible to church every service. I'm not asking you that. I'm saying, how much did you read your Bible this week? How much time did you spend studying your Bible? Boy, the Word of God, the Bible is precious. Psalm 19 and verse number 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. You know, you wouldn't go on a, on a road trip without a GPS. It used to be that you wouldn't go without a map. We, we, when we were traveling the country, we had an atlas, and we followed that thing religiously, right? Remember MapQuest? You had to go type your address, and you have lists of all these papers, turn here, turn here, turn here. Remember that? All those things are obsolete now because everybody's got a giant GPS on their phone, right? And that's what everybody uses. But you wouldn't go on a road trip without a GPS, or at the very least, you wouldn't go without a map, right? Why would you try to go through life without following the Word of God? And how can you know what the Word of God says if you're not reading it? You're not just going to lay down next to the Bible and, and, and by osmosis it all goes into your head, right? You're going to get a lot of it by being in, in, in mess, hearing messages and being in the services and everything else, but you're not going to get everything you need from the Word of God just through the messages. You need to be in the Word of God yourself. Every single person in here uh, ate breakfast this morning. Well, I can't say that. I didn't eat breakfast this morning, but you've eaten in the last 24 hours at least, right? Why was that? Because you were concerned about staying alive, right? You have to eat to live. And the Bible says in Job chapter 23 and verse number 12, neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. How important is the word of God? He says it's more important than even eating. Now look at me. I haven't skipped very many meals lately. And I can tell that most of you haven't either. I'm kidding. But, that's, but we don't skip meals, right? Because we know the importance of eating to stay alive. You wouldn't go for days and days and days without eating. But yet we do that with the Word of God. And Job says, it's more necessary to read the Bible than it is to even eat. How important is the Word of God? Well, I tell you, years ago, there was this thing that went through called COVID. And uh, you remember that? Feels like a long time ago in some ways, but, you know, uh, how much changed during COVID? Couldn't go out to eat. Couldn't, couldn't uh, you know, couldn't go to a, a grocery store without wearing a mask. I didn't go to very many grocery stores, I'll tell you that. Couldn't, couldn't do anything. They were trying to cancel church. They were trying to tell us we couldn't even go to church because of COVID, right? Funerals were canceled. Weddings were canceled. They, they, they tried to close everything that they could close. Imagine how much more precious the Bible would be if all of a sudden we didn't have it anymore. Imagine how much, uh, uh, if, how much more we would want the Bible if it was outlawed. And they started taking them all away. I was just, I, I don't even know why I wasn't even doing it on purpose necessarily, but I started counting up the number of Bibles that I have at home. I have a lot of study Bibles, and I think I, st I stopped at 34. I have 34 Bibles between my office here and, and at home, and all different study Bibles and everything else. Imagine if that was gone. Imagine if you couldn't just go pick up your Bible and carry it to church. Imagine if you couldn't just go sit down and read it whenever you felt like reading it. 
Imagine how much more precious the Word of God would be. We take it for granted so often. I've seen videos of, of, uh, uh, of uh, missionaries in China giving Bibles to some of those Chinese Christians that have never held the Bible before. And you know what they're doing when they grab the Bible? They get a copy of the Bible and they hug it. They hold it. They start weeping because it's so precious to them that they can actually take the Bible in their hands and read it for themselves. I've seen many times when, when, uh, when, when people, especially uh, for their faith, were put into prison and they didn't have the Word of God, how thankful they were that they had portions of the Bible memorized. And what they would do is they would get, they would get as many of them together and they would try as much as they could to, to remember how much of it they knew and, 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 and were able to recite to each other so they could actually have something of the Word of God. How important the Word of God is. How precious would it be if all of a sudden tomorrow we didn't have it? But what changed? What, what would change if all of a sudden they outlawed the Bible? Would it make any difference in your life? Boy, you ought to pretend like the Bible is outlawed today and pick it up and read it and hold it. Count it as precious. Understand how valuable it is to be able to take the Word of God in your hands. The Bible is so valuable. One of these days, by the way, it's going to be outlawed. They're already tried more than once to, to classify the Bible as hate speech because it goes against abortion and it goes against homosexuality and it goes against the lifestyles of most of these politicians who have the authority to try to introduce legislation that can make the Bible be a hate book. Right? They're already trying. It's not going to be too long before they're successful in it and you picking up this word of God is going to be illegal. Would it change anything for you? Most people wouldn't even notice. If the Bible was outlawed and they came in and took every Bible out of their house, they wouldn't even, it would go on like nothing. How important the Word of God is. Gypsy Smith told about a man who had, he said that he didn't receive any inspiration from the Bible. I've read through the Bible a couple times and I've never gotten any inspiration from the Bible. Gypsy Smith said, let it go through you once and it'll change everything about the way you see the Bible. Oh, stop going through the Bible and let it go through you. It'll change everything about how you perceive it. You can guarantee failure when you don't accept Christ as your Savior. When you don't read your Bible, again, very simply, when you don't spend time in prayer. If you want to guarantee failure, don't spend time in prayer. James chapter 5, you should be there uh, in James chapter 4, but just a, a page or so over for you. The Bible says in James chapter 5 and verse 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. A person who is truly righteous will spend time in prayer. There's so many things that compete for our time, not even bad things, right? It's things like work, time with your family, time for relaxation, time for entertainment, time for hobbies, for side jobs, those kind of things. Nothing wrong with those things, but those are competing for our time so often. We should be on our knees in prayer and we're doing these other things instead of taking that time. What can happen so easily is that we let those things completely drown out the best things. We go back to our text verse in James chapter 4 and verse number 17. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. How many times are we commanded in the Bible to pray? Pray. Pray without ceasing. I mean, that's a, that's a strong command. It's a very short verse, but what a huge, all-encompassing thing that is. Pray without ceasing. And if you know that that's what you should be doing, and you're not doing it, what does the Bible say that that is? That's a sin. It's a sin to not pray. 
It's a sin to not read your Bible. Those are things that we should be doing because we've been commanded to do those things. And you know that you should be doing those things, and you're not doing that. That moves into the realm of sin. It's not just neglect. It's not just, oh, I missed it again. It's a sin if you know to do it and you don't. Turn over to Mark chapter 11. See, if you want to see your friends and relatives saved, if you want to see God help you become a better Christian, then you have to spend much time in prayer. I've said it often, and I've said it recently because it's something that I've been thinking about even myself, but I don't understand why God wants us to pray. Right? If I'm being brutally honest, I don't know why God wants us to pray. He already knows everything about us. He already knows what we need. He already knows everything that we're facing. He already knows what the answer to that prayer is going to be. Right? He knows the end from the beginning. Why, does, why do we need to pray? But God says to. He tells us to pray. And a lot of it is that he wants to have that relationship with us. He wants to know that we look at him as a father that we have to come to for everything. That's why God wants us to pray. And whether there was a reason to pray or not, God's commanded us to do it. So we need to do it. But Mark chapter 11 and verse number 24 says, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and ye shall have them. God doesn't say whatsoever you desire unless it's unreasonable or unattainable. Of course, we have to be praying in God's will. If you're asking for a million dollars, that's unreasonable and unattainable, and that's probably not something that God's going to answer unless you're asking for it for a church building. <laughs> then that's not unreasonable or unattainable anymore, right? He doesn't say whatever you desire unless it's a soul that you want to see one. He doesn't say what, what things soever you desire unless it's humanly impossible. He clearly tells us that if you believe that you can have it when you pray, that, that he'll give it to you. You think God wants souls to be saved? You think that God wants this church to continue on for him? You think that, that, that God wants to show himself strong and capable in your life and in the lives of those that are watching you? Of course, that's the answer to all of those questions. And I believe that the more impossible it looks and the more humanly unrealistic it seems, the request that we bring to God, the more God delights to answer his children and to shower us with the answers to those prayers. Well, I talk about the, our building situation and the fact that we're looking for a piece of property that is completely out of our realm of possibility. But there's a lot of people that know that are on the outside looking in that, that we need God to do something. And I think God delights in the fact of knowing that everybody that's looking at this from the outside knows that this is humanly impossible. And I think God delights in doing the humanly impossible to show others that it's not anything for him. He created that land with a word that he spoke, and not just this land, but all the land in the entire world, and however many other worlds there are that are out there. He created all of that too, right? For him to take a little tiny postage stamp and give it to us when somebody puts a value of $5 million on it is nothing for him. In fact, they can say all they want to that they own that property and they're selling it for $5 million. They don't own it. He owns it. The Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Right? It belongs to him. You can claim it, but it's still his. Right? The same way that your kids can claim all kinds of stuff that, that you have in your house, but it still belongs to you. You can take it back anytime you want to. Right? You've let them use it for a little while, but that's all it is. They're just using it until he's ready to use it for himself. He can take that away and give it to the people that he wants to give it to. 
right? And I don't know if that's what he's going to do or not, but he can. It, 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 just because it's humanly impossible or just because looking at it from the outside, it's unrealistic or unattainable. What things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. That's a lot of shalls in there. God is the God of the impossible. We just need to pray. And you want to guarantee failure? Then don't do it. Here's another one, number four, James chapter three. You want to guarantee failure? Don't control your tongue. Mark Twain said, it's better to keep your mouth shut and appear stupid than to open it and remove all doubt. I've always loved that quote. But I suspect that more damage has been done to destroy someone's life by the tongue than by any other destructive force. The things you say can be used for good or bad, and we talked a lot about that as we went through the book of James. But your tongue can be used to spread the gospel or to keep silent. Your tongue can be used to wound or to heal. Your tongue can be used to talk good about somebody or to smear somebody's name. Your tongue can be used to show humility or it can, it can be used to lift up yourself in pride. There's so much power in the tongue to determine if you'll be a success or a failure in life. James chapter 3 and verse number 3, Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. So you can never get in trouble for the things you don't say. This is just from a practical standpoint, but, but may I add here that the things you don't, that, that you say don't necessarily have to be with words that come out of your mouth. You can say a whole lot without saying anything at all uh, out of your mouth. So much foolishness is spouted on social media. In fact, I, I don't know if you've heard this story or remember this story, maybe from when you were a kid, but Aesop's Fables, you remember a lot of those stories? In one of Aesop's Fables, a donkey was walking through the woods and he found the skin of a lion. And uh, 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 some hunters had come through and shot that lion, skinned it, took the meat, and left the skin there. Well, that donkey thought, you know what? This is my opportunity. And so he grabbed the skin of that lion, and he wrapped himself in the skin of that lion. And he started walking through and scared all the other animals in the forest. And he was pretty proud of himself about that. He had this new respect, and he started to bray his happiness, only to give himself away by his voice. Right? The moral of the fable that Aesop said was very clear. Fine clothes may disguise, but silly words will disclose a fool. And that's exactly the way that it is. And in our day of social broadcasting, it seems that anybody can become famous by, by displaying every embarrassing thing about their life. Right? Let everybody in the world on television and on the Internet know all about it. But what is, what's gained by that quote-unquote entertainment? Right? People sit at home and laugh at the folly of those who don't hold anything back, but they're diminished in the process. Right? The, 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 that produces a corrosive effect because it encourages people to share more and more of what they have less and less to offer. Right? You, don't have thing, you don't have anything to say, so you've got to start coming up with things to say. By the way, you know that's how it works with, a, with the uh, interview process, right? 
If, if somebody, an interviewer that's actually a good interviewer will hold that microphone there just a couple extra seconds longer after that person is done talking. And you know what happens? They don't like the silence. So they feel like they have to fill that silence with something else and they have to say something else. And so that something else that they say is the one that ends up on the news. It's not what they intended for anybody to know, but that extra few seconds because they felt like they had to say something. Right? Just hold that microphone a little bit longer in front of somebody's face, and they'll say something that, they, that you're glad they said, but they're not. Right? And that's the way that social media seems to be today. I want to talk about a, 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 an epidemic. We have an epidemic of people sharing their opinions without regard to whether or not they have anything meaningful to say. Somebody said this, the problem today is that those who know the least know it the loudest. And that's exactly, that's exactly true. Much of what's promoted as wisdom is actually anything but. So it's the worst of foolishness on display. Maybe you've heard the old saying, you have two ears and one mouth. Use them proportionately. Almost all of us could stand to listen more and talk less, right? Rather than being compelled to tell everybody we meet everything that we can fit into the length of that conversation, we have to remember that wisdom, one of the qualities of wisdom is the ability to hold our tongue. In fact, turn over to Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21, and this is, this is true, obviously, what we're talking about is true from a practical standpoint. You don't have to say everything you think or everything you know. You don't have to be the, the one that's always talking, says the one who's always talking. But Proverbs 21 and 20, verse 23 says, Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles. Turn over to Matthew chapter 12. This is wisdom side of it in Proverbs. Matthew chapter 12 is the spiritual side of it. Maybe you know a little bit about President Calvin Coolidge. He was known as Silent Cal. He didn't say a whole lot as the president. In fact, he didn't really do a whole lot as the president, but uh, everything just went very smoothly during his presidency, probably because he was able to keep his tongue and not say a lot of things, but... His wife, Grace, told a story about a young woman who sat next to her husband at a dinner party. And she was talking almost the entire time, and she leaned over to him near the end of the dinner party, and she told him that she had a bet with one of her friends that she could get him to say more than three words. And he looked at that young lady, and he said, you lose. <laughs> he had learned how the value of, of, of carefully considering his words, and, and, and those even being few in number. But Matthew chapter 12, I think, takes it to another level. This is a spiritual level, and, it, and, and obviously that raises the level of importance in it. In, in verse 34, the Bible says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth evil things. But get this, verse 36. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Think about the implications of that. Well, number one, every cuss word is immediately off the table, right? Where does the Bible say thou shalt not curse? Well, this is one of them right here. Is a curse word an idle word? I'd say it is, right? Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Verse 37, for by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. 
How important is it to hold your tongue? You want to guarantee failure? Don't hold your tongue. The last one I want to give you is found in Hebrews chapter 13. So turn over there, if you will. This is, this is for me, a tough one to, to preach because of the, of the subject matter. But number five, if you want to guarantee failure, is don't follow godly leadership. God's put authority over you for a reason. He gives authority to you to help guide you in the way that you should go. And Hebrews 13 is often quoted for children to obey their parents and to obey their authority. But this is, this is written to mature adult Christians. This was not that it couldn't be applied to children, but it was not written specifically to children. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1 is, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But Hebrews chapter 13 was written to mature Christians. And verse number uh, 7 says this, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. They that have the rule over you are literally your, your leaders, your spiritual authority, specifically in our case, this is talking about your pastor. And I'm not trying to set myself up as some great hero or somebody's boss or anything like that, but God's put me in a position of authority. I didn't choose it. I'd, I'd much rather be sitting in a corner somewhere and letting somebody else run everything. Somebody has to lead this church forward. And if you believe that God's led you to this church, then God's led you to follow your pastor. What, what kind of business would you have if the president of the company was never listened to or obeyed? The president of the company said, this is the direction we're going, this is what we're going to do. And everybody said, forget that, I don't like that idea, this is the direction we're going. Right? And then another one said, I don't like the direction he's going, I'm going this way. You wouldn't have a company. Right? You have a president and a CEO of a company for a reason. He's the one that sets the direction that everybody goes in. Doesn't mean that he's smarter. Doesn't mean that he's you know, better looking or more capable of leading than everybody else in that company. But somebody has to lead. Something that has two heads is not better, it's grotesque, right? And it's the same way in, a, in the home, it's the same way in the church. A president that doesn't listen to suggestions from those that are under him would be a very foolish president and he wouldn't be in the company for very long. But he's still the one that, 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 that has the leadership. Somebody has to lead. And by the way, there are very serious implications too. Back to verse number 17. It says, whose faith, oh, sorry, verse number seven, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. That conversation, that word conversation is their lifestyle. But he says in verse number 17, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. I'm going to give an account to God for the direction that I led this church in. And so is every other pastor that's leading churches that are going in a direction that's away from the Word of God. They're going to give an account for that. There can be a lot of reasons why somebody will not lead in a direction that is a biblical direction, and a lot of it's because of the pressure from the people who don't want to follow. That's, that's a lot of, I think, I think if, it was, if, if, if it was easy to tell people this is what the Bible said and everybody would do it, then there would be a lot of churches that are going in the right direction. 
But pastors bend to that pressure from people who don't want to follow the godly leadership that God's put in their life. And so if they're pushing against it, the pastors are not strong enough many times to say, no, that's not the direction we're going. This is what the Bible says, and this is what we're going to do. That's not easy. There's many times when I sit in my office and I battle back and forth, is this what we need to be doing? Is this a battle worth fighting? But if it's truth and it's found in the Word of God, then it is a battle worth fighting. I'm told that I'm going to give an account for how I lead. You're told to obey and submit. And you're going to give an account for how you obey and submit to the leadership that God put in your life. If, if we both fulfill our God-given roles, then it works out perfectly for the glory of God. This is a pastor from, from the, the, the 18th century, the, the 1800s, that used to tell a story about two steamboats. They left Memphis about the same time going down the Mississippi River. And as they traveled side by side, sailors from one of the vessels started uh, making fun of the guys in the other ship for how slow they were going. Words were said back and forth, and the next thing you know, there was a competition that was on, and they were going to see the first one to get down to the port. So they started putting everything they had into it. Uh, they, they started roaring down the Mississippi toward the deep south, and uh, one boat started falling behind because it didn't have enough fuel. There was plenty of fuel to make it down the Mississippi River, but not enough for a race. And so one of the, one of the uh, 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 ship hands there, one of the sailors on that boat, grabbed some of the cargo and threw it into the fire. And the next thing you know, I mean, that boat started, the, the, the fire started roaring and that boat started gaining steam. So the next thing you know, they were gathering all of the cargo that they had on that boat and throwing it into the fire. And they won the race. But by the time they got down to the port, they didn't have any cargo left because they had burned everything up. And, and I think that's exactly what a church is like, too. God has entrusted the cargo to the pastor. My job is to get us there where God wants us to be with all the cargo intact. And sometimes when people get so wrapped up in, in the ends justifying the means and so wrapped up in what are people going to think about this place and what are people going to think about me as a pastor and everything else, start burning up the cargo in, a, in an effort to try to get to the end of the race first. And it doesn't count for anything, that, that aggressiveness, that competitiveness. We're not here trying to win attendance competitions. We're not trying to, uh, to win building competitions. We're here to please Christ and to try to live as holy as we can and at the same time win as many souls to Christ as we can. Those who always have a better way to do it or a stubborn heart and won't follow the direction of the leadership, that's a recipe for failure. When it comes to leading, I take that very, very seriously. When it comes to leading in standards and music and soul winning and holiness, you can't just shrug it off and decide that you're not going to do it. God led you here. God led me here. And he has us both here for a reason. And he wants you to hear what, we have, what, what, what God's given me from the word of God. And that's why, that's why, by the way, I use so much Bible in the messages that I preach. I don't know how many verses I have you turn to during a message, but I know I use a lot of Bible. Because if it's come from the authority of the scripture, then you can't argue against it. If it's my opinion, if I say, hey, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. All right, we're going to read one verse. Now close your Bibles and listen to me. All right, then that's different. But everything that I'm giving you is from the word of God. I'm trying as, as best as I can to lead you 
through the word of God. Not because I am some, you know, domineering whatever, but because this is the direction that God wants us all to go as Christians. And I've told you this many times, but if I'm asking you to jump a foot, I'm jumping three. Because I have to be the one. The Bible says, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. If I want you to follow me, what did Paul say? Follow me as I follow Christ. Right? If I'm not following Christ, then you ought not to follow me, and I ought to be kicked out of my head next week. But if I'm following Christ, and I'm giving you things from the Word of God, then you ought to follow. God gave you that leadership for a reason. When you disregard the authority or you disobey that authority, you're guaranteeing that you'll fail. You're going to make mistakes that will probably have lifelong consequences. And I'm not trying to set myself up at, listen, if you come to me and you say, hey, pastor, tell me what I need to do, I'm going to say, you need to find out what God wants you to do. I don't know God's will for your life. I'm trying, it's hard enough for me to figure out what God wants me to do in my life. I can't tell you what he wants you to do in yours. I can give you some advice. I can try to help you and lead you in a godly direction. That's your decision. You have to make the decision to follow Christ. But if we're all following Christ together, if we're all aiming at more and more and more and more holiness in our lives, if we're all trying to get the sin out, if we're all trying to be a witness for Christ, then we're all going to go forward in a direction for Christ together. And we're going to accomplish a lot for Christ together, regardless of what anybody outside of these walls thinks about this church or thinks about me. I've had many things said about me that are not true, that are hurtful. But you know what? They don't, they don't know us. <laughs> they don't know me. They don't know my heart, necessarily. We're trying, to, we're trying as much as we can to please the Lord. And I'm trying as much as I can to, have to, to be able to stand before God and say, I did everything that I could to lead this church in a direction that was pleasing to Him. And I hope that you'll be able to stand before God and say, I did everything that I could to follow the, the leadership that you gave me. Listen, if I start leading this church in the wrong direction, number one, you ought to, you ought to be calling out error. But number two, if you're following the leadership that God gave you, you're not the one that's going to answer to God for it. I'm the one that's going to answer to God for it. All the pressure is on me. And so if God gave me this authority and God puts the pressure on me to, that I'm going to stand before him and answer for what happens, then your responsibility is just to follow. And to follow that leadership as I'm following the word of God. And I would say leadership, if we had more assistant pastors and everything else, we don't right now. When we, have a, when we have assistant pastors that are there, then God's put them in those positions of leadership too. Deacons, those are positions of leadership. To know what's right and not do it is sin. If you've been here any length of time and you're not saved, then you know that you should be saved. To not do it is sin. To not do it has some very, very grave consequences. If you've been here any length of time, then you know that you should be reading your Bible. To not do it. Is sin. If you've been here any length of time, you've been, any, been a Christian for any length of time, you know you ought to be praying. To not do it is sin. You ought to be controlling your tongue and you ought to be listening to the authority over you. Not only is it sin to not do those things, but it's a recipe for failure in your life. You all agreed with me, you laughed when I said, How many of you want to fail in your life? All right? Nobody wants to fail. But yet, how many of us are doing all of these things? 
Are you reading your Bible? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you controlling your tongue? Are you following the godly leadership that God's put in your life? There's a lot of other things that we could probably look at and talk about that come from the Word of God. That's four simple things that most of us would say, ah, basic, elementary. But are you doing them? Because it's very easy for us to get away from those things in our lives. None of us want to fail. None of us want to be worthless. We all want to do something for the cause of Christ. So let's make sure we're doing, not doing the things that are going to guarantee failure. I, don't, I, for one, don't want to see anyone here fail in their spiritual life. Wouldn't it be great if one year from now, every single person that's here this morning will be here, this, will be here on that morning? Because we'll all continue to go on for Christ. Look around. There's probably going to be some that are not. Are you going to be one of those ones because you failed? Boy, what a shame that would be. What a shame that would be. Don't fail in your Christian life. Let's make sure we're doing these things so that we can be pleasing to Jesus Christ. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Let that be a reminder to all of us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. And though a very, very simple message this morning, God, I pray that it would help us to go on, continue on for you, and guarantee that we're not going to fail in our Christian lives because we're not doing these very, very basic and very simple things. And God, may you use the message in all of our hearts this morning. Thank you again for all you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand at your seat with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. God spoke in your heart this morning. Maybe you're not in your Bible like you used to be. Maybe you're not on your knees in prayer like you should be or like you used to be. Maybe you've let your tongue get a little bit out of control. Or maybe you've said, you know what? I know that he's said a whole lot of things, but I, that, that ain't for me. You decided that you're not going to follow the leadership that God's placed in your life. Listen, I'm not over here telling everybody what to do every single day of their life. I'm not anybody's boss. You don't report to me every morning to make sure that I'm telling you what you need to do in your life. But what I am doing is preaching from the word of God. What I am doing is giving you things from the Bible that God says we ought to be doing. Are you following it? God's spoken to your heart about any of these things this morning. As the piano plays, invitation's open, you come.